Dead Air. When you go into commercial radio, the one thing they tell you to avoid at all costs is dead air. Empty space. Silence. Well, that's what I've heard anyway. The truth is that I never went into commercial radio. So, really, I don't know. It's something that I've heard, though, and it rings true. So, let's try and experiment for a second. Or maybe a little bit longer. Just for a little, unless you're driving, which, who, who are we kidding, isn't very likely because who has anywhere to drive anymore. So, just for a little bit, I want you to close your eyes and prepare yourself for just a touch of dead air. It's awkward, isn't it? But then, there's power in awkward. Awkward is an ancient Viking word of power, of awkward power. Awkward means that you're pointed in the direction you're not supposed to be pointed in. You're looking where you're not supposed to look, going where you're not supposed to go. You've turned yourself into a weird direction that's just something else. Isn't that where the world finds itself right now? The coronavirus crisis is the ultimate awkward moment. It's silence, when the words are supposed to flow. It's emptiness that doesn't seem to be on purpose. Well, what good is emptiness? What does it get done? What is its productivity? What is its ROI? Empty space is inefficient, but meaningfully inefficient. It's the space between lines on a page, the pauses in a spoken sentence, the sleep between bright, sunny days. But the COVID-19 crisis is something else. We didn't mean to do this. No one saw it coming. No algorithm accounted for it. It's not part of any business plan. The most unsettling, unnerving, awkward thing about dead air is that nobody knows when it's going to end. That not knowing is where you find its power. Welcome to the first episode of the new podcast, Beyond Back to Normal, Business in the Time of Coronavirus. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm the researcher who conducted the study that this podcast is based upon. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing myself or the research project here for a couple of reasons. First of all, I will be placing that information in two supplementary podcasts for those who are curious. That'll be online in a day or two. Secondly, it's the experiences of the people I interviewed that form the core of this podcast. Without their ideas, observations, and voices, this entire project would have been impossible. That said, 
This episode may begin to explain what made it important to choose an open-ended, qualitative approach to this research. Here's what the research participants have to say about this. Well, um... I don't know. I don't know. It's a little scary, isn't it? I don't know the answers. I don't know. I actually haven't figured it out yet. I think I don't have a good answer to, for you or any answer. I don't, I really don't. I don't have no idea how to answer that question. I've thought about it too. I'm like, what's going on? I have no idea. You know, I was already removed. So I don't, I don't know. We don't know when this shit will be over and to what degree and, and in what form. One of the themes that stands out immediately in this research is that people in business feel like they don't know very much about what's happening in this crisis. Now, I'm not saying this is an insult, simply as a description. People know that the coronavirus, COVID-19, exists, that it has reached pandemic levels, and that extreme provisions to control the spread of the virus have been instituted practically everywhere on Earth. Beyond that, none of us know very much. COVID-19 is what they call a novel coronavirus. That means it's new. So new that even scientists who specialize in studying coronaviruses don't yet know enough to predict how the disease is going to behave in the months to come. We all understand by now that the coronavirus is a big deal. It's reshaped human civilization in the matter of a few weeks. Nonetheless, we don't know for sure where the virus is or where it will strike next. Peter Desane, a consultant with Accenture in Evanston, Illinois, was infected with COVID-19 several weeks ago. And he points out that even being diagnosed and going through the symptoms of the coronavirus, he doesn't really know the extent to which the disease persists in his body. Well, there's, there is a lot of uncertainty. I think that's one of the, yeah. one of the themes frankly, is how, how much uncertainty there really is about um, how you got sick, what's going to happen when you're sick, um, are you going to get better, is it gonna, are you going to be heavily affected or lightly affected? Um, and even now, some of that uncertainty has hit me in terms of symptoms in that even though I'm symptom-free, I was actually doing, um, doing a workout at home just to keep busy. And I found that I got um, a lot of like wheezing and shortness of breath, which I've never, I mean, I don't, I don't have asthma, but I definitely had kind of a raspy kind of, <laughs> kind of breathing, which is um, something I had never had before. So clearly I'm still affected. Um, even though outwardly I'm symptom free. Julie Lauzon who conducts research for the online travel company Expedia, expresses a more common uncertainty. She and her domestic partner have been sick, but thanks to the lack of adequate diagnostic testing, she has no idea if they had COVID-19 or another virus. I live with my partner, Mike, and he actually got very sick and 
I was like, oh my God, he has it. Cause he was coughing and he had, um, he had all the symptoms and you know, everything, but seriously, he got really sick and um, he was having all the symptoms of this stupid coronavirus. So then I was like, oh my God. And I was sanitizing the house and I was like moved into my own, I moved into my office and I was sleeping in here because I didn't want to catch it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I got sick. Um, but I didn't have any of the symptoms. Like he had the cough, the shortness of breath, the fever, all of that. I only had a very mild, like barely even a cold. So we still don't know if we had it or not, but we acted, we're, we take the guidelines pretty seriously. And so we quarantined ourselves completely. So we haven't been, you know, we haven't gone to restaurants. We've been ordering our groceries online. Like I consider, I considered us like self-quarantined. So we've been at it for quite a while. Peter and Julie have observed something that's caught the attention of many others. Even though they've gotten sick, they can't be sure where they stand in this pandemic. They've taken notice of what they can't see in this crisis. The threat of coronavirus is real, but it's invisible. We can't quite tell where it is, even after it touches us, we can't really be sure when it's left. Marcus Leto, co-founder of Joint Idea and managing partner at Urbanista International in Istanbul, chooses to encounter the invisibility of the coronavirus as an opportunity for sense-making in what he calls a beautiful mystery. And the funny thing about it is it's, you know, it's something we can't even see. And, you know, it's something that we can't, you know, we can maybe touch it and pass it on, but we have no idea what we're really doing. So it's this, it's this kind of beautiful um, mystery, you know, in a sense that has kind of, kind of connected uh, everybody in the world. And uh, I guess that's, that's what I mean. Nobody knows really what sense to make of it. You know, it's just this thing that has stopped our life and, you know, become the singular issue that has impacted everybody the same way almost in a sense you know so it's um it's an issue we're all trying to grapple with and you know trying to tackle and trying to make sense of mystery in the culture of business is not typically regarded as a thing of beauty it's a source of danger of unpredictability the reliance on knowing what we're doing is so deeply ingrained in business culture that even among the reformers who advocate for a more human approach to business, or even beautiful business, push for their own version of it. They ask that businesses organize themselves around an enduring purpose. Martin Ciesielski, the founder of the School of Nothing, identifies purpose as the essence of business culture during the time of coronavirus? Before uh, Corona, so PC, there was always, you know, there was all this talk about purpose and all that. And, you know, right now, I think it's, it's getting more and more visible that it's really about, you know, what is this, what is this organization or company contributing to the commons or to society? And I think that's, that's the core question of business, I think, more and more. It seems difficult to argue against the idea of purpose in business. Certainly, the lack of a coherent purpose can lead to a cold corporate 
inhumanity. I will never forget the day, while walking into a client's headquarters, that I read the company's statement of purpose on the wall. The purpose of the corporation, the statement said, was to be fiscally responsible to shareholders and to provide value to customers. That was it. Nothing more. It's not at all the same thing for a business to say that it has a purpose as it is for a business to have an actual purpose. For too many businesses, the composition of a purpose statement has been an obligation to get over with rather than an exercise that shapes an authentic guiding principle for everything the company does. Now, with the COVID-19 crisis threatening the very existence of most businesses, the importance of a coherent, consistent sense of purpose has been made plain. The problem is that businesses are more disconnected than ever from human beings. The customers and workers who make their purpose manifest. As Marcus Leto observed, the coronavirus has a pervasive sense of invisibility about it. We can't see the virus. It often infects us without producing symptoms. Months after the pandemic began, testing capability is still inadequate. Peter Korper, a German corporate lawyer who specializes in techniques of mediation, pointed out to me that the dominant character of the crisis we're going through is that even as it threatens our lives and livelihoods, the threat is difficult to detect. I think it is unprecedented because we are not facing something real. We're facing a virus and uh, we're facing the results or the uh, the changes that are made to society because of the virus but i'm i'm facing something that is almost intangible peter has identified one of the greatest challenges of the coronavirus crisis the urgent need to respond to a threat that cannot be seen we have scientific knowledge of the coronavirus But that knowledge is abstract. Rationally, we accept the findings of scientific research to identify the virus, but emotionally, we find it difficult to motivate ourselves according to intangible information. On the other hand, the economic, social, and psychological distress caused by the response to the coronavirus are easy to see. We remain at home, alone. We look out on empty streets. We watch our own businesses flounder. Even those of us who have remained at work feel uncertain that our luck will last. So it is that our emotional minds send up signals of distress without knowing when we can escape the confinement of the crisis. We don't know what's going to happen next. We can't know. It isn't just the coronavirus itself that's beyond our knowledge. The crisis provoked 
by the sudden spread of COVID-19 has made such profound and thorough changes in the business landscape that it has become unrecognizable. Business travel doesn't exist anymore. Crude oil has been selling for below zero dollars per barrel. Packages shipped through the Amazon Prime overnight shipping service take over a month to arrive. Staple items such as yeast for baking bread can no longer be found on the shelves of most grocery stores. It's a strange new world for business, and the grocery store has taken on an iconic status as a representation of this disarray. I mean, a lot of people are doing really amazing things for others. Um, but like in the grocery store, there's this real sense of like this unseen um, thing that people are just sort of viscerally reacting to. So like if you, you know, walk up to grab a, a head of lettuce or something and there's somebody there, they might like react. Um, in a way that's, you know, like almost a panicky sort of a, so you can sort of feel the tension under the surface of people that are, that are out in public, but don't necessarily feel safe. I, I think grocery stores are different mm -hmm. because uh, they're, you don't know where everything is because you don't know if the things that you need are going to be there. So like they're like, as an example, my wife and I both went grocery shopping, different stores, because we buy different things at different stores. And I was at Whole Foods and she was in Jewel. And I was, and I wanted to pick up um, oats to make granola. And I didn't want, I didn't want Quaker oats from the, you know, from Jewel. I wanted rolled oats that I would typically get from the um, from the bins, I guess, at Whole Foods. Well, of course, the bins are all empty now because of COVID-19. You're not supposed to go into like a bulk area in a pandemic, which, you know, so it was like a moment where I was like, oh, of course, they're empty. Um, so but so but that meant that there were that there were none right so all of a sudden now it's like things that you expect to see or you go to a place and you know there's another ingredient that we buy at whole foods is um a particular brand of coconut milk whatever they have it different kinds everywhere but this particular brand that i like and of course the, it was all gone for some weird reason like who's making curry i mean whatever but uh, so, or f trying to find flour, it's like, you know, everyone seems to be baking, so flour is hard to come by. So you have this element of shortage and scarcity introduced into a grocery store experience, which isn't intended to have that, right? You go to the grocery store and you can almost blindly reach for the things that you get all the time. But now there's this element of, you don't know if it's even going to be there. So I think that that's also kind of a change in what grocery shopping means. What grocery shopping means tells us more than just the practical troubles 
of the grocery business in particular. Grocery stores have become one of the few kinds of businesses that remain open, and as such, they've become icons of the survival of business during coronavirus. What we see in the grocery store is a symbolic vision of what might be happening to businesses in general, though that is typically something that we can't see so clearly. It's worth remembering that the grocery store is a descendant of the very first marketplace. They're at the core of the culture of commerce, the bedrock of business that remains even as much of the rest of the business world has closed its doors. Julie Lauzon shares her own experience about how grocery stores, once viewed as one of the most banal of all businesses, have become crazy. I went on a normal shopping trip for me to, to our local PCC, and there's a Costco right across the street. And this was, um, was that like three weeks ago? It was before I started self-quarantining us. So I don't know, maybe three weeks ago. And I just saw a steady line of cars going into the Costco. It was crazy. It was and then someone, one of my friends was telling me that there was like literally a lineup with shopping carts all the way outside the Costco, which I've never seen before. I mean, it's just crazy. I don't know. I think it's, um, I think it's that people don't trust the government and they, they get into, into this like fright or flight mode where, I don't know, I, really, I don't know. It's very weird behavior and it's very selfish. I mean, really, it's, very selfish behavior because now no one can get toilet paper. It's crazy. The panic buying of toilet paper and the empty grocery store shelves that have resulted have become central metaphors for the coronavirus crisis and the way that it has created disruption far beyond the power of the literal reach of the virus itself. What has happened to the business landscape to make toilet paper difficult to find, to make grocery store shelves themselves unrecognizably bare. We have entered a time of unusual opportunity. Now, people in business like to talk about opportunity a great deal, but the truth is that opportunity in business is the exception rather than the rule. Once businesses identify opportunities, they work to control the field of opportunity and then to make them predictable and manageable. Businesses have gotten so good at making the world predictable that they've squeezed most of the opportunity out of it. What do we mean by the word opportunity? It's an ancient term coming from the Latin phrase ob portunis veniens, meaning coming toward a port, or coming toward a door. Opportunity is like an open port or an open door in a world dominated by closed ports and solid walls. Businesses are doorkeepers, port managers, that allow travelers to pass through, but at a price. To be in business requires the power to make opportunities 
available, but only under certain circumstances, under the terms that businesses control. To break into business requires the seizure of and control over an area of opportunity. In places like grocery stores, that's become very difficult to do as access to shelf space comes at a high price. So, grocery stores have become highly regimented, predictable places, reflecting the marketplace in general. In his 2012 book, The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg explained that consumers don't typically engage in rational calculations of value and convenience. Instead, they form routines of attachment to familiar brands and usually only change the brands that they buy when they undergo significant transformations of identity, such as when they get married or have children. With the spread of the coronavirus, however, predictability has been shattered and the chaos of opportunity has been let loose. Panic buying knocked down the carefully tended doors of grocery stores and strained their supply chains to the point of breaking. Great lengths of grocery store shelves around the world have been empty for weeks. Shoppers often cannot purchase their usual brands and are being forced to consider alternatives, even as they are being forced to reconfigure their at-home patterns of consumption of groceries. So it is that the opportunities created by COVID-19 pose a danger as well as a chance for gain in business. In the grocery store and in other business categories, long-held habits of consumption are now broken. Some brands will fail while others rise to take their place. Long after the coronavirus crisis fades into memory, many of these new patterns will persist. Even when old habits of consumption are resumed, their meaning will change. There will be no going back to normal. The working title of the research that informs this podcast was business in the time of coronavirus. It was a fairly straightforward name, reflecting the subject of the study with a slight literary nod to Love in the Time of Cholera, a novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. From the start, though, it was clear that the research findings would not follow a straight line. In the novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Cholera was much more than just a literal disease. It was a way of experiencing the world, a choleric personality, a passion with social consequences. So it is that although COVID-19 was the catalyst for the current global crisis, this study is not about the virus. It's about the way that people who live and work in the culture of commerce have reacted to the sudden changes provoked by the spread of the virus. It's the study of the story that we're telling about the crisis we're in. And that story begins in a retelling of where we used to be, back in the land of normal. Elise Green, 
who works as a business broker for small businesses in Florida, describes her experience of what she calls weird time as she keeps her business alive amidst the shutdowns of COVID-19. We're business brokers. So we help people buy and sell small businesses. If uh, you know a restaurant wants to sell their business, then we sell their business uh, for them. Or, you know, I mean, we've sold everything from an amusement park to landscaping companies. I mean, we, we do it all, you know, as, as long as it's, um, you know, a small to mid-sized business, you know, we don't do those multi-million dollar mergers and acquisitions. It's a weird time because we, we just, we thought, you know, so many businesses are being affected by this and they're probably, they're either going to want to wait until they can get up and running again and see if they can make it or they might be have been thinking about selling for a while and then now this has kind of pushed them over the edge like you know oh i'm ready to sell now so we've we've got a lot of activity happening with people wanting to list their businesses for sale and shockingly a lot of our listings that we that we had before coronavirus came along buyers are coming and making offers on them. So we're actually really surprised that people are still wanting to, to do business. Elise speaks for many who would like to see a return to normal as soon as possible. I think that ugh, as soon as we can get out and start spending money, those of us that, that do have any money to spend, that's gonna help recharge our economy. But I think that a lot of people are gonna emerge from this not having anything and having huge debts. So it, I think it's really just going to depend on, you know, everybody's situation. But I'm hoping that, you know, we can start trying to get back to normal as soon as possible. You know, probably my, my best guess is, is as good as anybody's, but, you know, just going along the lines of looking at the models of what they're projecting and, and what they're saying about social distancing, you know, hopefully by the summer. Many others in business, however, are not so sure that a return to normal is in the cards. Julie Lauzon from Expedia comments. I don't know exactly what's going to be different. Will we all just go back to our old ways? I don't know. Over the last few weeks, Julie has been getting together with her research colleagues in a little online ritual that they refer to as virtual coffee. During these gatherings, Julie has noticed a kind of social connection that always eluded her back when things were normal. But through this virtual coffee thing, I'm getting to know the whole team of researchers because we don't work together on things. We're all assigned to work streams. So we, the, our little group of researchers, we don't work together. Do you know what I mean? Because we're not on projects together because we're each working on our own work streams. So one weird benefit of this through the virtual coffee thing that we've been doing is I'm really getting to know people that I would not be getting to know in my normal day to day because I wouldn't be having meetings with them because I'd be busy doing my other stuff. If I look at the bright side, I am getting to know my fellow researchers in a way that I wouldn't be getting to know them because during that time, we just talk about ourselves and we're just getting to know each other. Like, we're just talking about whatever we want to talk about. I'm seeing them in their home with their kid behind them, or I'm seeing the dog come up and give them a kiss on the face, or the cat climbing up on the... So I'm seeing a view of them that I would never see 
in my normal day-to-day -day interactions with them. So I think people underestimate the value of really knowing your colleagues in that way. It, it just brings, it's like a humanity. It like makes them real to you. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but um, I feel it's a positive coming out of this that I'm seeing a side of my colleagues that I would not necessarily get a glimpse into, you know, because we're kind of in this weird situation. Julie observes that there's a level of humanity in her co-workers now that's become apparent during this weird situation. A level of humanity that wasn't available to her in a normal day at work before the crisis. Something about normality prevented this kind of intimate social connection on the job. The crisis has brought her a weird benefit, a benefit to things being so weird. Julie doesn't know whether there will be a return to normal, but she's taking advantage of the abnormality while it lasts. Other people I spoke with are positively hoping that business will avoid going back to normal. Among these is Dave Mason, strategy director at Multiple, a branding and design agency in Chicago. You know, how long is this going to last before we quote unquote get back to normal, you know, whatever that is. I'm hoping we don't get back to normal. I'm hoping we realize normal was kind of fucked up, you know, and let's try to at least try to reimagine and reinvent a few things anyways. I think the new normal has to, we have to have a reckoning as a society and say, all right, so what did we fuck up, right? For-profit healthcare is, is a mistake. The only people that can defend that now are the people that make money from healthcare. And those are the insurance companies because, you know, the doctors and nurses on the front lines that are putting their lives at risk, you know, they're not raking in the money. They're not. And what about the people who clean the hospital? We've got to have a reckoning and say, you know, we're valuing the wrong things because it got us into trouble as a, as a nation. And that is a national security threat. Dave identifies the coronavirus crisis at its worst in the United States as more than just a matter of simple bad luck. He sees the crisis as the result of a culture of business that has been allowed to put profits ahead of human need, a business of medicine that's focused on raking in the money, as he puts it, rather than protecting public health. Alastair Somerville, a consultant who specializes in navigational design for museums and other public spaces, sees an opportunity for revolutionary changes in this post-normal reality. Because I do a lot of wayfinding work for museums and um, people, and particularly for um, cognition and accessibility reasons. The way in which people experience new environments, of course, is something I, I, I'm interested in, and the way in which they wayfind across new environments. I mean, the opportunities are extremely huge. It's just because, I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of work I, talks I do on post-normal design, which just came back from a conference, my final conference before I, um, we came on shutdown, was talking about sort of 
the problems of normality. And so sort of the ideas that we might actually use this sudden liquefying of sort of all of the economic and social structures that everyone thought was, you know, completely um, solid. The possibility that you could use this to create revolutionary elements to society are quite high. Dave and Alistair both signal that normal is a term loaded with social power. Normal is not neutral. Normality is a model for how things are supposed to be, and as such, it's a social construction. Normal favors some people, but leaves other people out. Normal is an open door for some, but a blockade for others. What seems clear from this research is that the pre-coronavirus version of normal is gone. As Alistair says, normality has been liquefied. Nobody in business knows what's going to happen next or even has a fully formed plan for what might happen. No one is in control of the doors of opportunity. The fact that business is running as anything but usual means that we have available to us a huge array of possibilities for how business might work in the future. Normal is just one of those possibilities, and it's a possibility that seems increasingly difficult to reassemble. So, as long as we're in this weird time, when the normal rules of business have been suspended, shouldn't we take the trouble to examine the new possibilities, rather than quickly rushing back to the familiar? Philip Vostel, who studies cultural constructions of time, points out that widespread ignorance is something that people around the world have had to accept as a consequence of the coronavirus crisis. Yeah, I think that the profound confusion and the sense of um, not knowing is something which is, which is characteristic of, of the situation that we are in. We don't know when this will all end. I mean, I'm, I'm going back to the current situation. So maybe the acceptance of not knowing might be a kind of, um, I don't want to say empowering, but slightly, it can bring some relief. How could the acceptance of not knowing bring people in business relief? Business culture has spent the last generation being data-driven. We have centered our work around information technologies and knowledge workers. Yet somehow, the massive mountains of what we know now led us to this strange global moment, this pocket of dead air that's brought the world of business to the brink of another Great Depression. It turns out that knowing it all isn't everything there is. There's another kind of power at work here, the power of what we don't know, of what we can't know. Maybe the relief that Philip is talking about is the relief of feeling that we always need to know what's going on. In this strange moment when all of our knowledge has failed to protect us, we have the opportunity to let go 
for a little bit and admit that the situation has escaped our control. As Philip says, it's not empowering, exactly. It's something more like the power of being temporarily disempowered. It's important when we have lost our sense of direction, and we don't really know what's going to happen next, much less what we should do next, to admit our ignorance. That's what the people I interviewed for this research indicated to me, over and over. They admitted that in many respects, they just don't know what's happening. When you admit that you don't hold the knowledge that other people need, that's when you become ready to learn. The coronavirus crisis is an opportune moment for asking questions and listening to the answers that emerge with an open mind. That's the approach to research that I have tried to undertake for this study. The interviews I conducted were open-ended, directed by the experiences shared by the people I spoke with, rather than a set of predetermined questions. The coronavirus experience that we're all going through, after all, seems quite open-ended itself. We don't have the data we need, or even the frameworks, to organize the data we need. It's impossible in this moment for a business to be objective, because we've lost our certain grip on what's real. When objective reality becomes impossible to track, that's when we need most to turn back to the subjective reality of the human experience. Jeremy Sturt is director of the creative agency Just Add Water in London. When we spoke, he cautioned against a reliance on data at the expense of human connection. I think this is a contention which, so if, if I go back, I think there has been a rising desire within business to endeavor to be rational and to actually have data drive all decision making. And that has been going on for the last 20 to 30 years and it has become ever stronger with the rise of uh, digital online, et cetera, you know, show me the facts, show me the data, et cetera. That is at the expense of more human, emotional, and if you like, cultural aspects of business, which are critically important to how do you build trust, for instance? How do you build trust in a relationship? Well, you build it through actually trusting someone and uh, getting to know that individual. That's not about data and it's not about facts. I mean, yes, there's facts behind it, which is, can you prove that that person is trustworthy? Well, look at their experience, their history, et cetera. But I think what has happened over um, the last few years has been that sort of rise of the data, show me the data at the expense of the emotional and at the expense of the cultural aspects of business. Now, when we get to times of, um, true crisis such as we're in right now what are we all defaulting to it's the emotional attachment the engagement the relationships the let's get on zoom let's get on let's do house party let's reconnect with people we haven't connected for a significant amount of time why are we doing that because we crave human engagement we crave human touch and we have dropped that 
in business to such a degree. And I think it's this crisis, I would hope, reinvigorates the importance of human touch within the business world, but also reminds people that it's not just all about the data. You have to actually build that trust, that um, commitment, that engagement between people in order for business to really thrive. As Jeremy says, in a time of crisis, when no one really knows what's going to happen next, there is no data that can guide a business into the future with anything close to certainty. When people in business are faced with uncertainty, they rely on trusted human relationships. They reach out and reconnect, working with other people to find a way forward together. The coronavirus crisis is returning business to its emotional and cultural roots as a human enterprise, shaking off the facade of automated algorithmic management. This cultural experience of business is what this podcast will continue to explore over the weeks to come. We have started out with what we don't know, but humans cannot remain in a vacuum for long. We create meaning, even in situations from which familiar structures of meaning have been stripped away. As we move forward next week, we will consider the opportunities for business to begin to make sense of what's going on, even in the midst of this pervasive feeling of disorientation. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Beyond Back to Normal. Quite soon you will be able to find a transcript for this episode on the websites beyondbacktonormal.com and businessinthetimeofcoronavirus.com. The music that opens and closes each episode in this podcast series is a song called Corona Norco from the 2010 album To the Dust, From Man You Came and to Man You Shall Return by the instrumental duo Charles Atlas. Chin up. Stay well. <laughs>